You're listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, and you are listening to Tarazi Tuesdays with the Bible as Literature podcast. In today's program, Father Paul explains how the scriptural God acts according to his own good pleasure, disrupting the expectations of the story's addressees. Do the waters besiege the land? Does the land encroach upon the waters? Can anyone know how God will act or control what he will do? Of course not. All we can do is hear what comes next in the story. I am happy to introduce Father Paul on the Bible as Literature podcast, Tarazi Tuesdays. Every living thing or living being or whatever, which is yukum, was destroyed. And here the verb is again maha, to erase, from the face of the ground. And Noah only remained Alive, and the verb that is used here, it's very interesting because it looks ahead to the prophetic books where we have the verb from the root sha'ar, wayisha'er, which is translated as remnant, that he remains. Again, per se, it's just what remains is the rubber. But then slowly on, you as hearer, that's why you have to be patient, you get to the point where you realize that God would make out of a stump a new seed, especially in Isaiah chapter 6. And in Isaiah, we have that ruchar. So it's a pointer to my hearers how things have to be at one point interconnected out of the text, not, oh, we knew that, that God can do the impossible, and then you start saying anything impossible. But as I keep repeating to the people, even if God can do everything impossible, it does not mean that every time he is bound to do the impossible because you prayed him to do so. That's the fallacy of theology. That if you ask God, he will do it. No, God will do what he wants to do. And remember the story of the thorn in the flesh of Paul. And again, the text ends with a fourth time and the waters prevailed, which is fantastic. In other words, you say in your mind, enough is enough is enough. And then the author tells you, no, it's not enough. The waters were still preferring. And then we have a total switch in 8.1. And God remembered Noah. So it's really pure literature, powerful. I don't think that there is any literature even in the Greco-Roman and later European, that can compare with the Bible. But again, it's a slap in the face 
of those who think that they created civilization, you know, the Greeks and the Romans and the Europeans, that they have to submit to this barbarian language, which is not only a Semitic language, but it's a concocted Semitic language. <laughs> it's a triple punch, but that's the way it is, and I can't help it. Well, I can help it because the Lord has willed that I would grow up knowing Arabic, which was fine. It helped me, but still I had to learn the biblical, the scriptural Hebrew. There's always been a lot written about Genesis and how it reacts to Babylonian mythology and ancient Near Eastern stories and that sort of thing. And, you know, a lot of times when they talk about Genesis 1, God is defeating the waters in order to create land like Marduk and Tiamat. But you brought up the importance of this word Gavar, which appears three times verse after verse, where the waters prevail over the land, which is the opposite of what is happening when people think of Marduk versus Tiamat. It seems to me that in Genesis 1, God is using the land to defeat the water, but here he's using the water to defeat the land. land hey, let me tell you the importance, Richard. In all the other stories, extra-biblical, the God who conquers the water is always against the waters. Notice, Baal and Mot, which is the waters. But in the Bible, and it's more than interesting, God toys with both. He uses everyone according to his Evdokia, goodwill. He is not an automaton. That's what kills the people. Remember earlier I said, even if God is capable to do all impossibles, that I don't know because there is always new impossibles. That's not the point. The point is that our conclusion is that he is so and thus always so. Remember, when people just can't stand the fact that God is not always merciful and compassionate. But these two words, merciful and compassionate, are together in the book of Deuteronomy that is threatening you with the blessing and the curse. Very important. Actually, this curse is going to appear at the end of chapter 8 that God promised not to curse anymore. So that would be my answer to your question and via your question to all those who says, oh, it's parallelism. Yes, because the people have to speak a language that the others understand. For instance, let me push that ultimately people tell me always, you attack the city, the city, the city, but Zion ultimately is the city of God. Yes, but there is play, a play on that, that it comes down from heaven. There is no city that comes down from heaven, a city that was built by human beings. So one has to be careful to hear the totality of the script, you know how in movies 
like my youngest son always reminds me because he is a writer and a movie man and so on. And I said, yes, but dad, don't you remember that at the beginning of the movie, this statement was made? And at my age, I have forgotten that. Now, when it comes to the Bible, I try not to forget. But in the movies, you know, it's uh, just another movie. So it's something of the kind. It is the total picture that comes out of the total twists of the story of that character. In this sense, the scriptural God is incomparable. I mean, he curses and blesses. He brings up the dry land and he makes it Another kind of dry land. Notice the play. Now you allowed me to go back and play on Yubasha, which is dried from water. That's how you need the land. And then you need a little bit of rain. But God sometimes sends lots of rain. <laughs> so it is as though God here is siding with moat, death, the waters against Baal. And you yourself have seen this in Hosea chapter 2. The one who is always good unto you actually is luring you to fall in love with him. He always gives fruit to your land so that you can bow to him. But the real father, in other words, the one who is your father, whether you like it or not, because he begat you, can slap you in the face and can bless you. He remains always your father. And this is what theology does not want to accept, because it is essentially anthropocentric. And that's my total answer to your question. No, it's a completely different character, incomparable. On that last point, Father Paul, in trying to pin their father down and say this is what he is, what theologians do is very much akin to what cultic religion does. People imagine somehow the theology is different than cultic tribal religion, but it's really no different than someone building a shrine in a location and saying, we control God. This is how God behaves. We can, as you said, to use your word, automaton. Yeah. This reminds me in one of my last classes when I was getting ready to leave the seminary. I taught my books and we were dealing with the prophets. I don't know which one. doesn't matter about the punishment. A young woman, very interesting. She wanted to take Hebrew with me and so on. But notice the question at the end. She said to me, Father, is God merciful? And all the students were waiting for my answer. How is Father Paul going to get out of that? And after I answered, I got a big applause from all the class. I said, unto all the others, yes, he is definitely merciful. Unto you, I shall not know until the day of the last judgment. Now, only Tarazi can come up with such answers. 
Now, I know how the people tell me. You avoided to answer. No, I did not avoid. Because the question was using usury. She wanted to use the answer and apply it to herself. That's why I critique the fathers, especially Gregory Theologian, said, God is so nice. I mean, he could not send people to hell. There is no hell and so on. Come on now. People make him a great saint. He was thinking of himself. He doesn't care about the rest of the people. He wanted to make sure that he himself will not be thrown into hell. Come on, my friend. If you can't guess that, then I can't help you. So it is really very important to understand that he is all powerful, should be understood as he does whatever he pleases. And only because he is someone like that, he was able to take care of you when his evdokia, his will, his good pleasure was to bruise his lamb in Isaiah 53, 10, for our sake. Come on now. And that's central in the New Testament. The for our sake came out of God's Evdokia through an act technically of punishment. Come on now, friends. Come on. No, it's not the same. The God of the Akkadians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the God of theology and the philosophers are not the same. I mean, are not the same. They are alike, but they are not like the scriptural God. Who is like you? Remember what we chant at Pentecost from the Bible, actually, it's a statement. The one who does notice, not who is ultimate in essence. Uh, the one who does wonders. Tathav masta pion. Wonders. Tavmazu means to be amazed. You see something, you're amazed, you're not expecting. But in theology and mysticism and spirituality, the amazement is fake. Oh, God was so nice to me when I was not inspecting. But in your mind, God is always nice. That's the trouble. You're amazed that he did it at a point when you were not expecting. But that's not the meaning of the marvelous things that he does because one of his marvelous things is when he destroyed Pharaoh. I took my time but you hit with both your questions a special nerve that has to be touched upon and I'm sure at some other point we'll get back to it because wisdom reading scripture. We look forward to next week's episode. Thank you very much Father. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.